you have your Bibles open again at uh, the passage we read from verse 17 down to verse 32 of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. There's a story uh, told uh, about the uh, American comedian W.C. Fields uh, in the early part of last century. Uh, Fields was well known as uh, an immoral character and a friend had burst into his hotel room uh, one evening and was startled to find uh, Fields reading uh, a Bible, presumably a Gideon Bible that had been left by the bedside. He said, what are you doing reading uh, the Bible? And quick as a flash, W.C. Fields responded, looking for loopholes. Looking for loopholes, uh, which, I suppose, uh, sums up the uh, relationship of the Pharisees to much of the law. Uh, They were looking for loopholes. They were looking for ways to domesticate uh, what was uh, the, the power of the law, nullifying it by transforming it from a matter of the heart and what we, are, we think and, and feel and are motivated to, one of external keeping of the law. This is a sermon that we are, are studying, and uh, most good sermons have a specific text, a body of verses that uh, is studied and then uh, explained and illustrated. And if you were to take uh, a key verse from the Sermon on the Mount uh, and regarded the rest of the sermon as expounding it and illustrating it, then I think it would be verse uh, 17 of the chapter where Jesus says, Do not think uh, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Uh, This is a question hanging in the air uh, in the uh, relationship between Jesus and the Jews. Uh, What do you say about the law. Where do you stand in relation to the law of Moses? Let's remind ourselves again of the the way that we respond to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It's a message of grace. It's not, if you like to think uh, of the difference between something that's prescriptive and descriptive, uh, something that's prescriptive tells you uh, what has to be done in order to achieve something. Well, it's not prescriptive in the sense that it's telling you how you can become a Christian, right? Do these things and you'll be right with God. That's how some people have misunderstood the Sermon on the Mount. No, uh, I try to live my life by the Sermon on the Mount and therefore things must be right between me and God. But it's not saying that at all. It rather is descriptive. It's describing the life of those who are in a saved relationship with their God. The Sermon on the Mount uh, describes the Christian, someone who belongs to the kingdom of heaven, who is poor in spirit. Uh, They've learned to mourn for their sins. Uh, They now have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Uh, This is is the kind of person uh, whose lifestyle must be shaped by Jesus' teaching. And their desire to obey comes not from uh, the hope that they will be accepted if they obey. Their desire to obey comes from gratitude 
to the one who has saved them. It's so important for us to realize that. Jesus' uh, text then, verse 17, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets, uh, is worked out now in, if you like, uh, the case studies of a number of the Ten Commandments. And this morning we're going to, to see how Jesus' fulfillment of the law is worked out in relation to two sins of passion, murder and adultery. And, and then in relation to what the Pharisees had said about divorce, how they had uh, minimised the, the, the requirements that made divorce permissible. So let's look first of all at murder. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject judgment. Well, it was said long ago, it was said in the commandments. It's one of the, the, the ten commandments, sixth commandment. And as far as the, the, the Jewish teachers of the day were concerned, uh, you were free from having sinned here. Uh, you hadn't broken the sixth commandment so long as you hadn't left a trail of corpses uh, in your wake. So long as you weren't guilty of homicide, you hadn't Uh, broken the sixth commandment. And Jesus says, no. Actually, there is a train. Uh, There's a train of of, uh, events, a train of of, uh, attitudes and thoughts which uh, start with the the angry thought and angry words and end up uh, with murder. And Jesus illustrates it with the example of someone who's angry with his brother. Such a person will be liable to judgment. Uh, one who labels someone with a term of contempt, uh, the word uh, raka, uh, roughly translated, meant empty head, showing uh, contempt for someone, calling somebody a fool, put you in danger of the fires of hell. Now, Jesus is not, so that's not misunderstanding, he's not saying that uh, nasty words and killing somebody with a knife or a gun are equal, equally wrong. However, our words, he's saying, are terribly significant because they betray what's in our heart. They are the spillover of the emotions that we keep hidden. And in the end of the day, someone who uh, wishes someone else dead and whose anger is shown by character assassination by a deliberate belittling of someone's character, is on the same side of the fence as the murderer. Some people literally make life hell for others by their malicious talk, their cutting words, their mean gossip. Jesus is saying these people are in fact in danger of hell themselves. One of the ways that that we can avoid the, the force of the, the, the law of God is by demonizing certain groups of people. You know, we, we think of people who are obviously wicked people, terrorists, for example, and we put them in a category of their own. You know, they are wicked uh, mass murderers who act out of hatred for groups of people. Whereas I'm over here. 
And Jesus will not allow us to do that. Jesus says that there's far more of a, of a connectivity uh, working through our thoughts and motives and angers. He challenges this morning, have you never burned with murderous anger? Now, again, to qualify, not all anger is sinful. In fact, it's probably the case, unless we are properly anger, angry over some things, uh, then there is something lacking. We ought to burn with righteous indignation about some things. Uh, we ought, for example, uh, we're thinking about Burma and the, the, the conditions that many people uh, have been living in Burma for decades. And that really, the more we, the more we learn about it, ought to create a, a proper righteous indignation. We ought to burn with anger against what happens in that country. Against God's own people who are uh, displaced and who are, are raped by soldiers and whose children are separated from them and who have to hide in jungles. If that doesn't move us to anger, then there's something lacking. Martin Luther uh, once wrote, When I am angry, I can write, pray, and preach well, for then my whole temperament is quickened, my understanding sharpened, and all mundane vexations and temptations depart. Jesus is outlawing here an anger which is a response to hurt done against ourselves. And that's very different from the uh, mindset of our own age. Uh, take, for example, the advice that's given by a secular therapist, Gail Lidenfield. You can buy her books on Amazon if you are so minded. Uh, she has a book uh, managing anger and she compiles a list that she recommends her readers to recite several times until it sinks in. She says, I have a right to feel angry when I'm frustrated. I have a right to feel angry when I'm disheartened. I have a right to feel angry when I'm hurt. I have a right to feel angry when I'm rejected. I have a right to feel angry when my needs are ignored. I have a right to feel angry when I'm let down and so on. Really? Jesus is warning us that we have no such right when uh, we are hurt by others. So we need to be careful about our emotional anger and the words that go with it. Now, although the commandments are phased negatively, uh, they all have positive implications. Some of the Puritan writers were adept at bringing out the positive implications of the commandments. And here, uh, in the context of murder and wrathful words, it is the importance of maintaining good relationships with other people that is the flip side of the sixth commandment. If damaged relationships can lead to anger, and anger brings us in danger of the fire of hell, then we must make sure, uh, as far as we can, that our relationships with other people are kept sweet. We are to uh, seek to live at peace with all men so far as we can. Jesus says, picture a man at church. He's about to go and declare his, his love for God. He's about to lay his gift at the altar. Suddenly, he remembers that things are not going well between himself and another brother. Immediately, he leaves the temple leaves the gift 
that he had brought up for God. And he goes and seeks out that offended brother and he seeks reconciliation with him. Imagine if our services here in Hope Church were punctuated by these kind of walkouts. No? Where's she gone? She just got up and went out all of a sudden. Where did he go? He's gone as well. He's gone somewhere else. Oh, they went to, to make up uh, differences that they'd had uh, with someone that just got out of control. They're going to ask forgiveness. These would be blessed interruptions, would they not? Blessed walkouts from a church service when people were so moved by the word of God that they took immediate action to remedy uh, the breakdown in relationships. This would be worship that God desires. I remember uh, hearing uh, a great African preacher at Keswick Convention years and years ago, uh, Bishop Festo Kvenjali. I think he was from uh, Kenya. And he told a story once about <coughs> a time when the Holy Spirit convicted him that he needed to go and say sorry to his wife for uh, a, an argument that they had had. He says, I can't go now. I'm about to preach in 20 minutes, he said. And he says, the Holy Spirit uh, responded to him, okay, you go and preach and I'll stay with your wife. You see what he's saying? Uh, unless we are obedient to such promptings of the Holy Spirit, then we will lack the power of the Holy Spirit in our service of God. Uh, we are living then in disobedience. Again, Jesus pictures two men uh, who have fallen out, verse 25 onwards. Uh, they're on their way to court and they're still arguing as they go along their way. The men, Jesus says, should settle their argument before they're in the courtroom with the judge. Uh, it may be costly now, he says. It may involve eating humble pie. Uh, but if action isn't taken straight away, it may mean one man finding himself in prison until the last penny of the debt is paid. C.H. Spurgeon, uh, writing on this, uh, wrote once, many go into a court to get wool but come out closely shorn. That's the nub of what Jesus is, is uh, warning. And if that's true in one-in-one -one relations, it's also true in church relations. Uh, we ought to be forgiving and merciful in our attitudes uh, towards uh, other churches. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Jesus is telling us that we should, as far as possible, remove all basis for enmity, but he is not urging us to share every thought in our hearts during the process of reconciliation. Our secret thoughts and sins will not be sanctified by telling others about them. Doing so has led many Christians and those they have spoken to into unhappy and sometimes distressful situations. So, there's murder. And then, secondly, Jesus looks at adultery. It illustrates how the fulfilment of the law uh, impinges on the seventh commandment. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Jesus is speaking about adultery, but he has uh, in mind any uh, kind of sexual impurity. The man who is guilty of the lustful look uh, has already planted his feet on the slippery path that leads to adultery. Now, that's kind of obvious in our day, isn't it? The, the connection between uh, what we look at, what people look at with their eyes, and consequent uh, immoral behaviour. Uh, many of those who commit sex crimes have a history of downloading pornography, for example, over the internet. So the root of adultery is found in the heart. And again, there is the negative, the, the do not, but also the positive side to the command. Uh, you shall not commit adultery uh, has on the flip side the requirement that we commit ourselves to the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is God's gift to men and women where they can find fulfilment for their natural affections, as the preamble in, in wedding services goes, and where if God wills they can uh, bring up children. But marriage is first and foremost a committed companionship. God saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And so uh, he gave to man a companion to whom Adam first was to be committed. Commitment is the foundational element of marriage. When a couple uh, get married in public, they make public a declaration to be faithful to one another, whatever the circumstances. And God has ruled that it's only within that context, within, context, within the context of, of committed marriage, that sexual relationships are to take place. Now, that idea, of course, is mocked and derided by society at large, the idea that you would be so uh, you know, restrictive as to uh, rule out relationships outside of marriage uh, is thought to be uh, laughable. But very seriously, there is a slide within the church itself. As so often happens, the church uh, begins to take a lead from the world and the, the norms of the world uh, begun, begin to impact upon uh, relationships and commitments within the church. And so again, Jesus brings us right back to root causes. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than, of, than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, quite clearly, Jesus is not uh, speaking literally. We're not talking about, about uh, amputation here. But he is talking about what uh, divines have called mortification. Uh, denying the opportunity to temptation so that, for example, if internet pornography has been a temptation, then one takes whatever steps are necessary uh, to, to rule that out of a life. Uh, throw out whatever it is. 
to avoid being alone with a person, even if that causes some kinds of misunderstanding. Action must be decisive. And adultery has its, its beginnings, its risings in different ways uh, for men and for women. Uh, with men, it is of, often the stimulus of the eye that acts as the beginning of sin and looks lustfully. Uh, with women, it can be the ear that is the entry for adultery. You know, a woman becomes frustrated with her husband. You know, he never listens to me. And then she finds Prince Charming who does listen to her and is willing to, to hear uh, about all her troubles. And he makes his way into her heart through her ears. And Jesus is warning that any gateway into the heart, which is an opportunity for sin, must be guarded against. Divorce is closely related to the issue of adultery. Moses had permitted the Israelites to divorce if a man found something that was displeasing to him uh, in relation to his wife. Now, uh, displeasing or indecent. And that presumably meant uh, adultery, sexual indecency. But the Jews had, again, like W.C. Fields, had seized a loophole and they had begun to interpret this uh, as anything that displeased the man. So it was not unknown for uh, a man to be uh, going for a divorce on the basis that uh, his wife kept on burning the, uh, the meal. And it was displeasing to him. Jesus brings out the intention of the law. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. In other words, Jesus is saying that marriage creates a, a physical union which is so deep that it would be unthinkable that anyone should break it by divorce. And the only one exception that's given is the case of fornication. And even then, Jesus says, it's not mandated, it's not uh, prescribed. You, you must divorce if there is infidelity. But it is such a serious sin uh, against physical union that it makes adultery, uh, sorry, it makes divorce permissible. Paul also speaks in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, of uh, desertion. Uh, a desertion that cannot be remedied as uh, potentially a, a grounds for, for uh, granting divorce. And again, Jesus is highlighting the, the superficiality of the, the Pharisees and the scribes. They had high-sounding rhetoric. They were supposed to be the upholders of the law. But Jesus is saying, saying in fact... Uh, because of your leniency in this area of divorce, what you're doing is you're multiplying adultery. That is the, the outcome from your playing fast and loose with the law. Let's close, uh, shall we, making some application, practical applications to uh, ourselves and to uh, our fellowship. Notice in the first instance that uh, we are called as Christians to become a compassionate community. When Jesus uh, had the woman who had been taken in adultery brought to him, 
the Pharisees were, of course, looking for you know, the stamping down on this sinful woman, the enactment of the, the most severe penalty. And Jesus' response to the woman taken into adultery was very different. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We often say, don't we, that uh, church, Hope Church, this congregation is not a gathering of people who, who, who have got everything together in their lives. Uh, it's not, a, if you like, a, a health and fitness club for those uh, who've come with finely tuned bodies to become a little bit more finely tuned in a spiritual sense. Instead, it's a spiritual hospital where those who know that they are broken and needy come and find the grace of God. And so the Christian community is the place where those whose lives have been messed up by sexual sin and divorce are able to find the love and compassion and understanding that will enable them to to move on uh, by the grace of God. Secondly, we need to be aware of the treachery of our hearts. None of us are immune to the the subtle inroads of sin. And we also need to be aware of the, the way that we can camouflage over our lives uh, by uh, maybe playing up the religious side of our lives because actually there's something quite wrong going on in one part of our lives. The writer George MacDonald in one of his tales uh, tells of a giant uh, who in many ways was a good giant But there was one glaring failure in the life of this good giant. He ate little children. But uh, he considered that that was made up for by the fact that he he wore white stockings on Sundays that were much whiter than anyone else's white stockings. (coughs) See the point? That's the kind of thing that we we do sometimes. You know, we, we... we zoom in on our religious life, our religious observances, and in fact, there could be something quite off in another area of our lives. When tempted to give in to sin, one of the remedies is to remind ourselves of the consequences of sin. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's underlining the consequences of breaking the commandments. He doesn't hold back from raising the specter of unending punishment in hell as the destiny of those who play loose and free with sin. Face a wrongful attraction with a reminder to yourself of the consequences that would follow from giving in to that attraction. This would destroy my marriage. This would break up my family. This would destroy my witness in the community. This would break up my fellowship with other Christians. It would break my Christian walk. What's the sense in pandering uh, to something that has consequences like that? And then finally, uh, Jesus is telling us to, to take decisive action 
uh, in order uh, to get the source of temptation out of our lives. Take decisive action. You know, when a surgeon is dealing with uh, a patient who has cancer, the, the surgeon doesn't you know, go as close as he can to the tumour with the knife. He wants to be absolutely sure that there's no spread that would be left uh, in the body. And he makes a margin of error around that cancerous tumour. There's no point in uh, sparing the knife when it comes to temptation. And as we recognise the sinfulness of our own hearts and the reality of our own personal struggle with sin, is it not incumbent on us in our prayer to pray, Lord God, divine surgeon, wield the knife as you will. Deliver me from temptation. May God bless to us his holy word. Amen.